I want to tell you, start out today by telling you about something that confused me. And you may say that's not really that abnormal, Pastor, but I heard somebody called somebody a goat. And I said, that's not nice. See, when I was, when I was growing up, and especially in sports, if you called somebody the goat, it meant that they were the scapegoat. They were the one who messed up. That's what it meant. And I heard especially, this is, like, this is where my moment where you can tell I'm over 50, you know those young people? You know, they were, I heard these people and they were saying, that guy's the goat. I'm like, what do you mean he's good? I think he's one of the best maybe of all time. That's what we just said. He's the goat. I'm like, that's not nice. Why are you taunting him then? And somebody had to explain to me, the goat is the greatest of all time. And if you call somebody the goat, it's the greatest of all time. And uh, I was sitting there going, wow, that's new to me. So I've got this new thing. I have to be careful with my new knowledge. But, you know, and today... We're going to talk about uh, a goat and a ram, and the goat actually thinks he is the goat. So I thought, well, now I get to use that new knowledge. So, boy, this is exciting today just to be here. What a great day. So basically, the passage we're going over today is Daniel chapter 8. We're continuing on our series in Daniel, and faith, and talking about faith in difficult times, but we're talking about a story of a prophecy in, uh, written in the 6th century, that, took, that the prophecy was fulfilled in the 2nd century. Very accurate prophecy, describes exactly what's going to happen. Uh, accurate history before it takes place. And many pastors, it's funny, I was looking, I always look through sermons of different pastors dur- throughout the week and say, well, how did they handle this? There was a couple that warned their people in their church, this is going to be difficult, or this could be a bit boring. I'm like, well, that's exciting. And another one said, uh, or they'll make up really interesting meanings. Because, you know, it, the plain meaning of it can be like, yeah, I don't know about that. But they'll, they'll come up with really interesting meanings. This person represents, you know, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Donald Trump or whatever. You know, it's like, no, I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. So, but what we need to know is it's written to a people that are going to read this in one of the worst persecutions that they ever had. The story of God's deliverance from this persecution becomes the basis for the holiday that is celebrated by Jews to this day, the festival of deliverance or the festival of Hanukkah. And we have two sections in this. We're going to have verses 1 through 14, and we're going to have verses 15 through 27. Verses 1 through 14 is going to be the vision. Verses 15 through 27 is going to be God and Gabriel explaining to Daniel what the vision was all about. And so what I want to do today is go through the vision, and then I want to talk about how we can apply this to our lives today. What it means to us about a a prophecy that was given in the 6th century B.C. for people in the 2nd century B.C., they saw it accurately fulfilled, and how that affects us today. So we start with the setting of the vision in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel after which appeared to me at first. And I saw a vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So Daniel tells us at the vision that he is transformed and brought into a place. It's two years after the last vision we had in, the last, in Daniel chapter 7. 
And he's taken to Susa, which is going to become one of the royal cities of Persia. And he's going to be brought to this wonderful city. Remember, he's still under the Babylonian rule right now, the Babylonians and that which leads to the Persians. And so he's still under their rule. He's taken to one of their, their future holy cities or provincial cities. And he's going to receive this vision from God. And, it's, and, it's, and he's going to find out some things that are going to happen in the future. And now let's look at the characters that are going to come up. First of all, he says, there's a ram who is up. And it says, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So what he's going to describe now is something is going to come up in our future, he's saying, that such a powerful thing that he did as he pleased and became great. There have been very few empires that have had this happen where they had such great power that no one could stop them. Unbelievable power, but it also talks about a lot of political pride. A lot of, look at me how wonderful I am, which kind of comes with that. And a very rapid rise of power. The powerful ram, you can just think of a ram butting into everything and knocking everything over and there's nothing that can stop him and that's what he's describing that's going on. And in verse 20, he receives the explanation from Gabriel. It says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the the Media and Persia. Now what we need to understand is they're not in control right now. He is seeing a vision of something that's about to happen. He's in Babylon. Babylon's still in control. He says, now you're seeing a vision about Media and Persia. And he says, and basically 200 years of history are summarized in these verses. The rise of the empire of the Medes and the Persians, which took place after the fall of Belshazzar. We talked about that, where there was a handwriting on the wall. If you're here for that, there was handwriting on the wall that said, you've been measured and you've fallen short, and the next day they lost their empire. So Belshazzar is going to receive this. And the, the present king of the Babylonians is going to be the guy that's going to fall. The rapid rise of the power under Cyrus, the ram who went through everything. And one horn becomes more powerful. Now, the way you know that this is true is one horn because there's the Persians and the Medes. Has anybody ever bought a Median rug? Okay. No, you brought a, you've heard of a Persian rug, right? Have you ever heard of the Prince of Media? No, you heard of the Prince of Persia. Persia becomes the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire becomes prominent. We see it in Esther, and we see it in other books of the Bible where the Persian Empire is such a big deal. They don't even call it the Median Empire. So you see the one horn is growing and overtakes the other horn. He even predicts, not only are you going to see two empires, you're going to see one take over the other. So God is laying out exactly what's going to happen to the T. And this is interesting because a lot of people, when they're dating the book of Daniel, they'll say, well, there's no way that Daniel could have known this stuff. He's too accurate. Well, God did. And I think that's what's so interesting about it because it was written in the 6th century, and even things that are going to happen in a few years, he's going to see them happening. And the empire was amazingly powerful, the Persian Empire, but it didn't last because you know what happens with empires? There's always one stronger on the way. There's always an empire ready to take over and say that we're going to take over now for that. 
And the next thing it's going to be is going to be the goat. And he says in verse 5, as I, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath, and I saw him close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of, instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So there's a great, a great horn that rises up, and this great horn is very upset, and he's very mad at the, at the ram. And this goat rises up, and he's got one horn, and he is going to strike that ram, and he's going to knock him down, and he's going to destroy what is going to be the Persian Empire. It also shows that this is always very brittle because the one horn on the goat breaks and four little horns come up. You notice a lot of breakage of horns in here? That tells you uh, one little factor I think you need to understand. Everything is brittle in this world. The greatest powers in the world, everything that we think of, how wonderful it is and how powerful it is, is always brittle. It can break. But only God has the power to keep it going. And in verse 21, Daniel receives the interpretation of this. And it says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from, this nation, from his nation, but not with his power. The goat thought he was the goat. Okay? We need to understand that the goat thought, I am the greatest of all time. I have all this power. In fact, the guy is going to be called, the, the, the single horn here is going to be a guy you might have heard of called Alexander the Great. Okay? This guy loves himself so much. He loves himself some Alexander the Great. He thinks, I could see him being a third person guy. Alexander the Great is here. You know, just one of those guys who just likes talking about himself. He named 70 cities after himself and one after his horse. I don't know why the horse won, but okay. He, he, he likes to have his name out there. He never lost a battle in 15 years of conquest. He so rapidly destroyed the Persian Empire. And you need to understand, he was, he was a Macedonian who was, uh, became a Greek and he was so mad at the Persian Empire because if you've ever seen one of the worst historical movies ever, 300, don't ever see it, um, there's this war in it and it is the Persians attacking the Greeks and then that's about the most, the accuracy goes away. But uh, the Persians kept attacking the Greeks and so Alexander the Great's mad at him. He says, I'm going to conquer them. So we even see exactly why he wants to do it because he says, I'm going to attack those people that attacked my homeland. And what was interesting about him Alexander the Great, it was recorded by Plutarch that um, even Alexander the Great was so great that he even smelled good. Um, Plutarch, who's a, 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 he had the lives of the Greeks, noble Greeks and Romans, wrote 400 years after Alexander's death that Alexander the Great had a most agreeable odor. He exuded from his skin that, he, that his breath and body all over was so fragrant as to perfume the clothes which he wore. 
I'm telling you. The olfactory detail was part of a tradition during which Alexander's lifetime of ascribing godlike attributes to conquering king. Now, I've been around young men, young women. We all perfume our clothes, okay? Usually in the negative sense, all right? But it was said of Alexander the Great, and maybe this is just one of his myths and one of his, how wonderful he was, is that he even smelled good. His breath in the morning, just amazing. He would sweat, and you'd want to wipe it off and put it on you. That's how good it was, okay? And you can see the power, the strength, everything that he had. And what happened, um, there's even a fascinating footnote about this. Josephus, Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans, said that when uh, Alexander the Great came up to... um, came up to Jerusalem to conquer them, that one of the priests ran out there, showed him the book of Daniel, which showed that, that God had predicted that Alexander the Great was going to win, and Alexander the Great was so impressed he left Jerusalem alone because God had already written it in advance. And the priest is like, hey, we didn't already know about this. Look, we knew you were coming. And it worked. And so Alexander rose fast, and like a lot of people, he died young. He died at the age of 33. We think of uh, drunkenness, malaria, a combination of the two. There's a lot of rumors about his death. And then his sons, young sons, were murdered by his generals. And his four generals were set up. Okay? And if you're in my world history class, you have to remember who they are, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. Uh, but in the whole thing, the, the generals are set up. They're put in control. And one of these becomes the Seleucid area, which is going to be the one who's going to be over the area of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And they're going to cause great trouble for the people of God. So think about this. Now you say, man, I'm getting this whole history lecture. Wow. What you need to understand is you're getting a history lecture beforehand. He's telling you exactly what's going to happen before it happens. It's like getting the newspaper for next week. Okay? That's what is happening right here. Now, it doesn't seem like, because I'm telling you exactly what happened, how it lines exactly up here, and lets you know that God knows what's going to happen. God can just say, hey, you wanted a little illustration? Here you go. Bang, 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 bang. Oh, that, that's going to happen, that's going to happen, that's going to happen. Trust God, he knows the future. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be a small horn that's going to rise up. And out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as the great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." So a ruler in 170 B.C. named Antiochus Epiphanes rose up in verse 9 toward the glorious land of Israel. He's talking about towards the glorious land. That in the future, this is going to happen. Now this is going to be great comfort for the people that are seeing this happen because they're going to say, wow, God knew this was going to happen and he has a plan for us. Now Gabriel tells them in verse 23 what this is all about. He says, at the later end of the kingdom... When the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall rise. 
His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his coming he will make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by the human hand. He starts small, but he grows great. He understands riddle means he's intellectually talented. He wasn't even the first choice, but he deceived his way in verse 25. When we study Antiochus Epiphanius, all of this is, he, he does all of this. It's incredibly accurate. If you're a history person, you get excited when you read this. He's telling you exactly about this guy, how he even rose up. He was given power to make war on the people of God. Verse 10 says he grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down. His power shall be great, and he will destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. He is given power to fight against. He is allowed to fight against the people of God. He exalts himself as God. Okay? He says, I am the goat. I am the greatest of all times. I am God. In fact, he had money printed that had Theos Epiphanes on it, which meant God Epiphanes. He said, I am God. And it says he became great in verse 11. He was as great as the prince of the host. And it also says, and he takes away in verse 11, um, that he took the regular burnt offering, was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. He comes into Israel and he destroys all of their regular offerings that they're doing, all of their sacrifices. We know from the Old Testament system you had to sacrifice everything twice a day. He erected an altar to Zeus in the temple. Okay, to Zeus in the temple. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, if you have any Jewish friends, they don't like pork. Okay? If you look at the Old Testament eating laws, this was the biggest sacrilege you could do was to put pork on the altar and to put Zeus there. And to make it even worse, he set up temple prostitutes in the Jewish temple. He is taunting God. And then he throws truth to the ground. It says exactly that he throws truth to the ground in verse 12. He takes their scrolls. He takes the Bibles. He takes, remember how Jesus unrolls the scroll and reads from it? He takes that truth and he throws it on the ground. He rips it into pieces and he tries to burn it. He's trying to destroy the truth. He is fighting against God's people. Now there's a Maccabean revolt. Have you ever heard of Maccabees? There's a Maccabean revolt against him. But it says at the end of verse 25, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. Now, like I said, the Maccabean revolt, if you've ever studied the story of Hanukkah, that's the story where, the, where uh, they celebrate the light burning for a certain amount of nights and uh, the miracle to happen so the Maccabeans can continue their revolt. And according to this, uh, Mac Antiochus Epiphanes, although he thought he was great, he died of grief and remorse in Persia after being defeated by the Jews. And so here he is, he's defeated, he just basically died of grief after being defeated. So he doesn't die by any human's hands. The Maccabeans went after him, they drove him away, but he doesn't die because of that. He's taken down by God. And earlier, there's one thing I kind of glossed over, it says that he did not get his own power from himself, but by another power, 
he has given satanic power to do great and mighty things. But it's important to understand that his time is limited. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speak, and another holy one said to one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It's almost, he gives us the time period of how long this is going to last. He says, this is only for a limited time. And this is going to happen because the Jews, again, were revolting. God allowed this to happen to them. But God says it's only for a limited time. And God says after 2,300 sacrifices or uh, 1,165 days, he says this will stop. The time period, or 1,150 days, this will stop at a certain amount of time. He says those days will be over. The time period fits with all the later events. Okay, there you go. That was your rush through. That's why a lot of pastors have warned their congregation about going through this saying, you are getting an ancient Near East lesson in history. But again, I want you to understand, although you had to see these points, if you were reading this in the second century where all this is going on, you're thinking to yourself, God knows what's going on. All right? He's writing this history before it happened. He's telling exactly what's going to happen. Down to the, the four horns, he tells them about Greece. People in, uh, you know, at this time were like, Greece, they're not that powerful. There's nothing like that. He tells them everything that's going on. And here's the application that we need to know. First of all, God is the goat. Okay? God is the greatest of all time. All right? There's nothing, everybody who rises against him, we're going to see all these different empires are going to rise up again, but God is. No one will be defeated. He will not be mocked. It says he was given not by human power he was taken down. He was taken down by God himself. We said that is enough, and God destroyed him. We need to understand that there's nothing in our life that God is not more powerful than. There is no empire, there is no anything in this world that can defeat our God. He sets limits to everything. Do you realize that anything that happens in your life that God has not forsaken you? That, allow that although that we are allowed to go through things in our lives and we don't understand why, God knows when it's going to end. God knows the limits to it. God has it set in place that there will be a time and a place for everything and I will take you through this. He took the Maccabeans through this. He took the people of Israel through this. In fact, they still celebrate the victory that happens at this event. The festival of Hanukkah, and it talks about it even in the book of John, they're still talking about the festival of deliverance because God delivered them. If go something's going on in your life today, I want you to understand, God has a time of deliverance for you. Okay? And he has said it beforehand. It may not be even in this lifetime, but God has a time of deliverance for you. All what he predicted came true. If he can predict, if God can give a vision to Daniel four centuries before it happens, do you think he can predict what happens tomorrow in your life? You think God has under control the next 20 years of your life? 
You think God has under control the next things that are happening? And we don't have to look at the world and say, I wonder what's going to happen in the future. I don't have everything under control. Guess what? You don't. But God does. He has every prediction. This whole story was set up just to show us to say God knows. He knows who's going to win the 2020 election. And he's going to work with that. All right? He's not, he's not thinking to himself, oh, if they elect that person, nothing I can do about that. I, but I believe sometimes Christians believe that. I really do. We think if we get our man or woman up there, then God will be glorified. But oh, if that other person gets in there, you know, you know buy the, get in the survival, you know, you know, whatever, trench and get ready for it. The bunkers, get them all set up. But you know what? God can handle Antiochus Epiphanes. He can handle anyone. He can handle this. Does that mean we don't search and go for the best that we can do and, do and get involved? No, that's, yes, we do. But understand that God has control. He knows the future. And if he can predict this, how much more can we trust every promise that he has made to us? That he who has started a good work in you is faithful to complete it. If he says it is true, it is true. He, will, he gives his vision to Daniel so Daniel can see something. Here's the deal with Daniel. It's interesting. He gave a vision to Daniel, and Daniel thinks to himself, okay, am I going to even see this? Daniel doesn't even see it. It's 400 years later that everybody gets to read about it. And the things that have been written in the Bible are things that God may have given you. may not be for now, maybe for the future. But you need to understand that everything that is predicted in your life, everything that God has put promises in your life, everything that he has promised to do, he will complete. If he can rise from the dead, if God can do all of this, he can handle anything. Next thing I think it's really important, and as I go through the book of Daniel, we really need to be careful with this. If that we will not understand everything in prophecy until we see it. We just will not understand everything. Anybody who publishes a book and says, I have it all figured out, and I've been reading about this, the guy who predicted 1994, uh, I won't mention his name, but he said that God is going to return, and Trinity Broadcasting Network had a, here's get ready for the rapture thing happened during that time, the 88 reasons, how Lindsay's Lake, you know, all of these predictions, everybody who's got it figured out, it's okay to look at these things, but we're not going to understand everything, and let me tell you why. When I, in, look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Okay, first of all, stop right there. Does anybody here been able to interpret dreams that you've never heard in your life, like Daniel could? Has anybody here ever been able to see an angel shut the mouth of lions? Has anybody here just, just been gifted in all these areas, able to eat uh, just fruits and vegetables and grow strong? He... Everything that Daniel did, he is set up beyond this. The man is the greatest dream interpreter of all time, and he receives a dream in his first reaction, I do not understand it. So why do people now think we can understand it? I'm sorry. I just think to myself, you're not Daniel, okay? Oh, we, can, we can learn things, yes, but let's not, let's not act like we have it all perfectly down. He goes on, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and, he, and I 
and it called, Gabriel, make the man understand the vision. So this is God calling to Gabriel saying, help Daniel understand. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So this is for a time in the future. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to an appointed time of the end. Then it goes on in verse 26. The vision of the evening and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Now, he has just received all this from God. He's received Gabriel, telling him about the vision. He has received word from God that about everything he's going to learn about the vision. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So in other words, Daniel does not understand completely what he just saw, and he receives the explanation from God given to Gabriel, given to him. Again, None of the people that are, I don't want to be picking on everybody who writes a book, okay? I'm just telling you, sometimes people get so hung up. Is this person fit into this? Is this fit into this? How does this all fit into prophecy? You know what we're going to know? When it happens. We're going to know. Because when Antiochus Epiphanes showed up, they knew. Hey, that's why that priest ran out there and showed it to Alexander. He says, we saw, here we finally understand what this is. Okay? And we're not going to understand everything. And if we're walking around saying, we need to understand all this, we need to have all the answers, the Bible gives the answers that we need, not the answers that we want. It doesn't tell us every little thing that's going to happen. It doesn't say who is going to be this and who is going to be that. And so many predictions have been made, and so many of them have been wrong. And you know what that does? I read the saddest thing. I went on Amazon. And I looked up 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. And I read the, the comments, because they're still selling the book. And I read comment after comment of people saying, my church bought into this. And to this day, I can't trust anybody in a church. So do we really want to make these predictions so solid and say that we understand prophecy so much and we've got it all nailed down, We've got it so much that we're going to drive people away because we're not right. How about the guy that was 1994? And then he wrote another book that was 1995. And then he wrote another book that was 1996. You know what that does to people's faith? It says, I can't trust the Bible. Because the Bi- you said the Bible said this. No, that was my prediction of the Bible. Daniel says, I did not understand it. That just hit me when I was looking at this this week. If Daniel doesn't, it's okay that we have, to have a general idea. He wants us to understand a general idea, but we're not going to get all the answers. We're not going to have all that. And sometimes, I like what Daniel does here. He says, I went about my business. Okay? I was appalled, and I just went about my business. He went about doing what he was supposed to do, saying, I'm just going to keep doing what God has called me to do. God has called us to keep busy doing the work of God while we wait for prophecies that have been given about the end of the days that are going to become true. And when we see them, we will know them because they'll, they'll make sense in the Bible. We don't know the future. God does. 
And I want to say this as a faith building for you. It's okay if you don't understand. It's okay because Daniel didn't understand, and, and Daniel's pretty good at what he does. He didn't understand it. And, he, and Gabriel talked to him. I've never had Gabriel give me information for a sermon on a Sunday. Okay, I've never had that kind of input from God like that. I have the Word of God, but I've never had something like that. The, next, the last thing that we need to understand about this is the words that are said in verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. One of the most important things that we must do in our lives as Christians is we must seal up the Word of God in our hearts. We must have the Word of God in us so we are prepared for what comes in the future. See, Daniel is telling them, seal up the Word of God. It's going to be needed at some point, but you don't know when. And you say, I need, you need to study all of God's Word. We need to have it richly in our hearts. We need to delight in the Word of God so that we are ready when we need to have those Scriptures applied to our lives. Um, and it, it's so important that we have that. There's so many times that God has brought Scripture to my mind in a certain situation, and I've been reading something, and it didn't make any sense at the time, but later the Holy Spirit brings it to my mind because I sealed it up in my heart, and I read it, and I studied it, and I put it in there, and God used it later. And God is telling all of us, especially with what I'm talking about, that God is in control, that prophecy is not something we completely understand, that seal up God's Word in our heart because when we need it, it will be there. We will have the answers from God's word when we need them because we have his word in our heart. Why don't you stand with me right now? If our prayer ministers could come forward. First of all, I just want to talk to you today. If you're somebody here who's never accepted Jesus Christ, you've never made him the master of your life, the God who four centuries ahead of time writes history, wants to save you from your sins. He wants to make you new again inside. He wants to deliver you from the sickness of sin in your life that's leading to death. He wants to free you from the power of sin. He wants to make you new again. He wants to be your Lord and Master, not so He can lord it over you, but so that He can set you free. And if you're here today and you're... Not, not following God, we need to understand that it is, today is the day to follow him. Come and talk to one of our prayer ministers. But for the rest of us here, you may have something in your life that seems like it is the greatest of all times. You may be facing something in your life that seems like the greatest of all times. You may have somebody that is, that is coming in your face like, uh, like the goat here. But understand that God is the greatest of all times. God can predict the future. Not just predict the future, but make it happen. God sets the limits to what happened. God can carry you through. God can give you in his word the information that you need. And understand that we need to have the word of God in our lives today so that we can allow that to flow through us when we're in need. So I just want to challenge you today to put your trust in a God that knows the future. Put your trust in a God who can take a guy like Antiochus Epiphanes who says, I am greater than God, and God says, no, you're not. And that'll be, done, that'll be it for you. A man who thinks he can taunt God in his own altar, 
But God says, no, you can't. Understand that there's no problem in your life that can taunt God. There's no problem in your life that God can't handle because he is the greatest of all time. Lord, I thank you today. I thank you, God, that we serve a great God. We don't serve a God that we have to wonder about, that we have to say, well, maybe our God can handle this, maybe our God can handle this situation, but not that. God, you can handle everything. There's no power, there's no state power, there's no politician, there's no uh, power that's brought against us, satanic power, God, that you're not in control of. And God, although we face suffering in this life, God, it's part of this life you have told us, God, but that you are in charge. That, God, you will bring us through. And, and like the Israelites, they're able to st- still to this day celebrate the deliverance that you gave them. At Hanukkah, God, we can celebrate the victories that you do in our life as you bring us through suffering. And, God, we know this to be true because we've seen it in the Bible and we see it in our lives over and over again. Thank you, God, for being our God. Thank you for allowing us to be your children. And we just ask you now, God, to draw us closer to you in everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, amen.